I'm Justin Voss. And I'm Ryan Isabel. And this is Built in Motion. Ryan, have you ever heard of skate cars? No, not really. Not until my buddy Brian pitched us a story for a possible podcast. He sent me a link to a documentary that uh, he was the lead editor on. It's called Signal Hill Speed Run. And uh, that was pretty much my first exposure to them. They look like anything from a plank of wood on skateboard trucks to these mini land speed record streamliners. It's almost like a piece of skateboard history that not a lot of people know about. The skate car almost is a forgotten piece of skateboard history. But for Tina Trefethen, it is something she can never forget. Oh, yes, yes. I remember, uh, kind of remember everything, especially after uh, problems started to evolve. At the time of our story, Tina was a professional hang glider pilot when hang gliding was just becoming a sport. So you couldn't even really buy one yet. You had to build your own. And I started flying here and was pretty much hooked by 1973. And I stayed in it all the way until 78, which was a Signal Hill event that changed my life and unfortunately took hang gliding away from me there. That Signal Hill event was the Signal Hill Speed Run, and I talked to a guy who knows all about it. The Signal Hill Speed Run was the world's first skateboard race, and... Uh, That's Mike. He's a filmmaker and a skateboarder himself. Uh, my name is Mike Horlick, and I'm from California, and I run Tunnel Skateboards here in Santa Monica, and I recently completed a documentary film, The Signal Hill Speed Run. The Signal Hill Speed Run is where the skateboard cars got their start. How did skateboards evolve into these rocket-shaped downhill race cars? Well, something like this wasn't even possible until they developed the polyurethane wheel. Prior to the 1970s, skateboards used metal or hard clay wheels that didn't provide much traction and made them much harder to ride. It wasn't until 1971 that Frank Nasworthy developed the first polyurethane wheel and changed skateboarding. I think it had changed from being a, a child's activity and a toy to more of a sporting activity where you would have surfers come in and practice going down hills. And uh, you were able to do a lot more in a skateboard then than you could in the 60s. So that's, I think, what paved the way for this downhill race. And right here is where competition drove the technology. The way the race started was um, there was a promoter named Jim O'Mahony And he got a phone call from the Guinness Book of World Records. They had a TV show with David Frost. He was a a British TV personality. And um, they called over there and they said, you know, a lot of kids are out there skateboarding. And can you create an event for TV so we can put it on this Guinness Book? And he saw the potential in skateboarding before anyone else really did. So he decided to make a few events. One was a high jump and a barrel jump, but sort of probably the... The most TV-worthy would be the downhill speed event. And he chose Signal Hill, and I believe he's from the Long Beach area, Jim O'Mahony. He knew about the hill, and Signal Hill is his own city in the middle of Long Beach. It's a very extreme hill, famous for Model T's trying to attempt to climb up the hill. 
And we were silly enough to go down the hill. I think it was about a 22% grade. It was the steepest hill around. It was a, a quick drop. It was all dirt on both sides and oil derricks and, you know, no fencing. And it, it was the Wild West of the uh, skateboard runs. And it was easy to cover for TV. And probably most importantly, they actually got permission from the city that didn't really know much about skateboarding, so they just approved the event. The first race would be 1975. It was an annual event, and it ran four years. So it ran until 1978 every year, and that was the last race. For that first event, the Guinness Book of World Records had their camera crew ready to see who was going to set that world record. But for some reason, only two guys actually made an attempt down the 600-yard course. Supposedly, there were about four or five other people turn up, but they looked at the hill and just said, I'm not going to go down that hill. And already in just the first event, people were modifying skateboards to create more speed. You had Garrison Hitchcock, who added a nose cone to the front of his to make it a little bit more aerodynamic. So in the end, only two people actually raced the first year. That would be Guy Grundy and Garrison Hitchcock. Guy Grundy took it standing, went to the top of the hill, and I think he went down the hill about 17 times. Whereas um, Garrison Hitchcock had started halfway up the hill and was practicing going down um, and then twisted his ankle. So by default, Guy Grundy would be your first world downhill skateboard champion, and he went 50.2 miles an hour in that first year. Fifty point two is hauling ass. I mean, it's fast. Well, year two rolled around, and now promoter Jim O'Mahony put up a thousand dollars for grabs, but there still wasn't a ton of rules. So basically, you could stand up, you could lay down, you could go on your knees, and everyone was competing against each other in the same division. Well, I would think laying down on your back like a street luge would be the fastest. Without rules, most definitely. So that second year you had a street luge. It was the invention of street luge there. Um, Sam Puccio was the dock worker who's credited with that. And, uh, and he won the event. And um, you had people standing. And the people standing said, well, this isn't fair because skateboarding is standing up. And this guy's laying down. He's doing a different sport. I'm starting to see how the sport in these classes evolved. Exactly. And then next year, in 1977, they created divisions for stand-up and lay-down. But the fastest one overall was still the guy who set the world record. So heading into 1977, a couple of the mechanics for Harley-Davidson named Fausto Vitello and Eric Swenson. They're now the owners of Independent Trucks, which is one of the larger skateboard companies in the world. And at the time, they were actually called Stroker Trucks. And it was these two mechanics that were Harley-Davidson mechanics. And... um they decided not only are we going to do a luge, but we're going to actually enclose it. And they were big on welding and metalwork. So they made a luge and they enclosed it. And they found this real small guy, Terry Nails, who was sort of a daredevil rock and roll star, to pilot this vehicle. They named it the Stroker Car. They showed up on what was supposed to be race day, but it rained. So the race was postponed and rescheduled for a few months later. And everyone rushed home, and some people decided, wait, we should make one of these skate cars too. So all of a sudden, it became this giant technological race to see who could develop a skate car quick enough. And some people didn't. Some people still did plain old luge. The first skate cars, were there rules to sort of control what you could build? There were a few rules that still kept it a skate car. 
They had to be lean steered like a skateboard. In other words, no steering wheel. The vehicle had to be under 10 feet long, and the wheels couldn't be bigger than 4 inches. To imagine what some of them looked like, you could almost picture the same shape as the top half of a commercial airplane, but obviously way smaller. Take its wings off and set it on top of a really long skateboard that was long enough for someone to lay completely out on, and you pretty much have it. A lot of people used fiberglass, and um, which was a lot lighter because they did have uh, weight limits on these skate cars. In other words, you couldn't come in and bring in a regular car. There were some all-aluminum cars um, and bodies. There's some very nice composite work on some that actually included the vertical fins and and uh, looked a little more uh, aerospace engineering influences. And some were uh, very rough backyard deals, uh, basically, you know, two-by-fours with uh, trucks put on. The Stroker car was made out of metal, though, luckily for Terry Nails, because during that first year with skate cars, they didn't have a parachute rule in place, and the primitive braking system that was nothing more than a piece of rubber attached to a lever that you would pull really hard and push against the ground to try and slow down. And it didn't work, so he went all the way down, and they had hay bales at the end. He went through the hay bales, and they actually didn't stop the traffic at the very bottom of the hill. That was a quarter mile from the bottom of the Signal Hill race. And he went through there and got hit by an old lady in a car, which was actually lucky because he was going to hit a, a, a brick wall at a, a National Guard recruiting center. So I guess when things start going bad in these skate cars, there's no way to bail out. No, not on the fully enclosed ones. Typically, the driver laid down on the board and then the crew would come and fasten the shell down over top of them with Zeus fasteners or something like it. And then you're pretty much stuck. And you're buttoned into, your Zeus fastened into this thing permanently. You don't have room for full face helmet. They're very tight. This had a very forward CG, so you're right up over the front wheels. Your arms are out in front. Your legs are straight back. And you're basically got your face an inch and a half off the ground. So that was kind of a, it was luck and luck also that he was actually in an enclosed metal car that had a frame. And I think he did get hurt. He did get taken to the... Um, ER, but you know, every year there are these incredible stories of luck of the Signal Hill speed run and the racers and the the spectators until sort of the final year. So I think the race always continued on due to this luck and that fact that nobody had been seriously hurt. If you think about it, you're just along for the ride. No steering wheel, barely any brakes. There's an, a certain angle with these cars. And once you went past a certain angle, you knew you were going to crash because you didn't have far enough to move your body to the other side to compensate, to steer back in the other direction. So when they practiced on the hill without the without the shells on top, they were able to save themselves. But once you put the shell on top, you gained maybe two to three miles an hour. But what you lost was the ability to compensate if you went too far to one side or the other. And I think that's one reason they had so many crashes in 1978 was people leaned past that guess you could call it like a point of no return. And at that point, there's really not much you could do in a skate car. I guess you could try to pull the chute, but there were curbs on both sides of the road. So you were going to immediately crash into the curb. And often these skate cars, you're about four to five inches off the ground. You know, you're not sitting up, you're pretty low. So you could see the, the, the obvious danger involved. And because of the danger, up until this point, there had not been any women competitors. So in the race's third year, Leslie Jo Ritzma asked how many women were on the sign-up list. She was told that it was too dangerous for girls to even enter. They said, I'm sorry, but you can't enter. And she said, well, I'm going to enter. So she fought against them, and they finally relented and said she could enter. So Leslie Jo Ritzma and Michelle Spooky McNeil entered that race in 1977. 
Spooky McNeil's dad built and designed her escape car out of his machine shop. Her car, you kind of sat up in the back, like you're sitting in a chair with your legs straight out in front of you, and her head was exposed out the top. And Leslie Joe raced a skeleton-style board. Skeleton-style is like laying down on your stomach, face first, with your hands either up in front of you or down at your side. It looks just like the skeletons that they race on the ice in the Olympics, with no enclosed cover over the car. Exactly, and those two girls paved the way for the fourth year when the promoters put up $1,000 in all divisions and then included a separate women's division. Downhill skateboard racing was becoming so popular that California Freeformer, which was the world's largest skateboard manufacturer at the time, wanted to sponsor these events and expand the sport. They decided they were going to help start promoting these races. These races were getting really popular at Signal Hill, and so some of the promoters said we should really create a series of these races and take them around the world so people could see skate cars, they could see the luge, they could see the stand-up. And so they went and they they did start another event at um, Derby Downs, which is in Ohio, and that's where they have the soapbox derby races. I'm pretty sure my dad used to tell me stories about racing soapbox derby at uh, Derby Downs as a kid, Um, but it is not as steep as Signal Hill. Not the extreme hill, but they did run them side by side, which was pretty cool to watch. And Freeformer even got a deal for the race to be broadcast on TV on the CBS Sports Spectacular. So Freeformer um, promoted that first race there, and then they got involved in skate cars. And they were beautiful black cars, fully painted up with the huge Freeformer logos and the driver's name on each side, alongside the company's red, orange, and yellow stripes. And they had the team to go along with those cars, consisting of Ty Page, Nick Leonard, Mickey Horn, and Tina Trefeather. It was in 78, and that's when ALS Freeformer was uh, getting big and doing many more uh, uh, oversized shows and even traveling with it, and they decided to have an entry in the skate car division. And that's where I met two amazing teammates. I skated with uh, Ty Page and Mark Bowden, who were very famous in freestyle at the time, and kind of my heroes, and so it was uh, fun to get a call to, to go ride. Tina was really an all-around athlete. And she was a skateboarder. She had done, I know, slalom. I didn't have experience in the cars to know what quality that the equipment was or what the issues would be with riding it. We weren't allowed to take them home. We didn't do any engineering or alterations or get to really test or evaluate the cars. So we were kind of just put in a position to to, uh, get in and go ride. So... I had had pretty good luck. I'd done uh, three training days, shot Signal Hill a couple of times, and hadn't had any accidents. It turns out I was the only one that had never crashed their skate car. (laughs) And uh, didn't find out about that till later. But apparently it was just very, very squirrely. And uh, part of the things to try and make it go faster and part of them were just engineering and design problems. Most skate cars, the rear truck didn't actually steer. So only the front truck steered, so that made them just more stable at high speeds and probably less less ability to turn, but you didn't really need a big ability because the Signal Hill speedrun is really a straight drop down that hill. A skateboard truck looks like an upside-down T, and on the ends of these Ts is where the wheels and the axles are mounted. They're designed so as you lean, these trucks will steer. If you want to turn to the left, you put more weight on the left side of the board. If you want to turn to the right... You put more weight on the right side of the board. So you have two trucks, 
and you would put them as far apart from each other to make a more stable skate car. Just like if you have a longboard skateboard, it's more stable than a little board where the trucks are right next to each other a lot closer. The pivot, how it turns, there's one bolt that goes up through these bushings. And the stiffer the bushings are, the harder you have to lean in order to make them turn. Now, on some of these fast skate cars, they had the rear trucks locked. So no matter how hard you lean, they would not turn. This would allow them to be more stable. It's the same reason why you turn a car from the front axle, not from the rear axle. Um, So when Freeformer entered, first of all, they used skateboard, regular skateboard trucks on both the front and the back of their cars. And they also had the um, one of the trucks under the, the stomach of the competitors. So I guess what I'm basically saying is it had a shorter wheelbase, which means it's not as stable. The event had grown in popularity so much by 1978 that over 5,000 spectators had shown up lining the street. Many said that the atmosphere was like that of a rock concert. Mickey Horn was the first of the free-former skaters to make a run down the hill, clocking in a speed of 57.52 miles per hour. But as soon as she reached the bottom of the hill, she lost control through the transition and was ejected from her car. Luckily, she was okay. The two sets of steerable trucks made the free-former cars very sensitive. You kind of blink your eyes left and right rather than leaning or shifting your weight at all. Uh, the braking was very, very poor. Anything you did for braking kind of disrupted the steering of the car. So we did have drag chutes and a pressure pad braking system that kind of destabilized the car if you tried to slow down. So that's perfect. So when you get going too fast and you try to use the brakes, it just gets really unstable. Next up was Tina for her first run, and she too almost lost control just as she hit the bottom of the hill. Her car swerved, but she was able to keep it from wrecking. When one street crosses the other, you have the indentation from the gutter and the water flow. And when you get a little bit airborne there, the car didn't want to stabilize as it came down. The freeformer cars weren't the only ones having problems. Nick Leonard had his drag chute not open and unable to slow down, hit the curb, and badly cut his nose and his cheek on the front of his car upon impact. Next up for the freeformer team was Ty Page, who made a run without a hitch, followed by Mark Bowden, who wasn't so lucky. His car was so unstable when he hit the parachute that it went over a curb and hit a telephone pole and broke in half. And he survived and still went to the hospital, but I think he got incredibly lucky. And then Tina's first run wasn't enough to put her ahead of her teammate, Mickey Horn, in the women's division. So in spite of all those wrecks and the race being held up multiple times to allow ambulances to return, she decided she was going to make another run. Because she thought, if I go down on this next run... If I beat that other woman's speed, I will become a world champion of skateboard racing. And she was already a world champion of hang gliding, and I think she really wanted to have that. At the start of a run, these skate cars were allowed to have people push them up to speed to get them going over the top of the hill. And this was kind of a skillful job in itself. Because he could destabilize the car pushing from the back. So we would just come flying over the top of this hill before we even started into the descent. And I had a real good track. I remember picking just to the, I think, left of the center line. You kind of wanted to stay off the paint. Even the paint on the road in the, the center line it wasn't good for this, the switch between the urethane wheels grabbing on the road and slipping on the paint. So we kind of picked one side or the other. I think the left track was good that day.
and, uh, and it felt like a really good fast run. It had it centered up. That run, she went down and she went over the finish line 57.69 miles an hour, which is pretty fast and almost as fast as the fastest man that year, who would be Roger Williams. I think he went 59.92, and that's the fastest speed ever of a skate car that's been recorded. So she crossed the finish line and she won the race, but something happened and she had an immediate turn to her left. Uh, The extra speed through the intersection caused me to get kind of airborne. And when the, the skate car landed again, the rear truck just cocked to the side and sent the car basically 90 degrees to the road at about 65 miles an hour and my face an inch off the ground and the curb coming up, which looked a mile high. So I tried to throw my body. Sometimes you get them to spin out. But the thing, amazing, it just carved a turn, a high-speed turn. Nothing I could do about it. Saw the curb coming. So she tried to raise herself up inside the skate car knowing that she was going to hit a curb. And she's going face first. She was not one of the feet-first racers. Worst part was there was a wall of spectators standing right there. And I was headed into the crowd. So the last thing I kind of remember was impacting the curb and lifting up my head. I exploded through the Lexan, through the fiberglass, had some shards kind of go into my chest, but I was able to get above the curb. I'm flying through the air, and of all things, here is a good old-fashioned stop sign pole, back when they made them out of big, round, heavy steel. And it went into my side, below my armpit, and above my waist, and went all the way into my spine and laid this big steel pole down to the ground. So basically, I'm wrapped around a pole laying there in my leathers, (laughs) And that was a quick stop. And after that, um, I had a, a, a big missing, missing chunk of time until later on. I mean, there were definitely medics waiting there, and her heart stopped several times between the race and the um, uh, hospital. And they were able to restart her heart. I... Um, was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and I did regain consciousness, and I was telling the the people trying to help me, they're going, I am drowning, I'm drowning. And what was happening was my ribs had all shattered my lung where I'd had an impact with a pole, and I was bleeding to death in the ambulance. So it was a long, excruciating uh, experience of basically not being able to breathe. So I think it's safe to say that people thought she could be dead. And, you know, this is back in the day, people didn't have cell phones, they hear sirens, they see someone getting taken away, and people were hurt in the crowd too. So it really was pretty hectic. And I think people weren't really sure what had happened. I was actually DOA by the time I got to the hospital. Uh, no life signs, and they rushed me in, realized what had happened. It sheared all the ribs off my right side and uh, had sheared holes in all three of my uh, lobes of my lung on the right side. So they realized they had to do a pneumonectomy and get the lung out, and boy, did I luck out. There was the best lung surgeon in the country was golfing in Long Beach, and they sent a helicopter, flew the doctor in, and he, uh, he saved my life that afternoon. 
felt so vulnerable that I had gotten into something that I had no control over. I wasn't responsible for the failure. There's nothing you could do. You're along for the ride. And uh, never again did I kind of take for granted the fact that you put yourself in that position. So after that, I built my own hang gliders. I built my own kick car. I built my own experimental airplane. And it kind of progressed into a whole different type of career because I couldn't be as physical anymore. So Tina ended up having one of her lungs removed at such a young age when she had all these things going for her. And she said she had her right lung taken out, which is your normally your bigger lung. So actually, she had more than half of her lung capacity lost. 21 years old and a professional athlete in the best shape of my life. I jumped off of the Sahara building in Lake Tahoe at a hang glider, uh, skated on the edge of a high-rise building across from the Bonaventure, uh, did uh, crazy jumps and stunts, and <laughs> it was a, a very exciting career for a few years. She really had who knows what in front of her, too. It is interesting that the one thing that ruined my life literally and put me in extreme pain and suffering for my whole life ended up heading me in a direction that's been very rewarding and met phenomenal people and even traveled uh, around the world. I feel very lucky. Most technically, uh, doctors and things, uh, they wrote me off as 80% disabled. I never had PT. They spit me out and considered me a goner, and I just had... uh, too many things I want to do. And uh, and here I am, almost uh, 60. So I don't know what happened. It goes by in a hurry, you guys. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Built in Motion. A big thanks to Tina Trefethen for sharing her story with us. And also thank you to Mike Horlick for telling us the story of the skate cars at Signal Hill. Mike and the team behind the Signal Hill Speedrun documentary did the real work gathering this story. If you'd like to check out the documentary, which not only has a lot more information about skate cars, but also has the evolution of stand-up skateboarding down Signal Hill, visit tunnelskateboards.com. We highly recommend it. And while the last race of these skate cars was a long time ago, many things invented at Signal Hill have stuck around till today, from air braking to the hut tuck, Even in the recent past, Street Luge, which was invented at Signal Hill, was an event in the X Games. As always, you can find Built in Motion on iTunes and the iPhone's built-in podcast app, as well as anywhere podcasts are available. To sign up for our newsletter and receive an email when the next episode is out, visit builtinmotion.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Built in Motion. I'm Justin Voss. And I'm Ryan Isabel. Thanks for listening.